welcome back to season two of the Astro Flight Simulation Podcast, where we navigate the digital world through art and culture. We had a unplanned hiatus here for a couple months, so anybody who stuck through with me, I really appreciate you. We're coming in with a banger. I have the Art of Darkness pod, Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly with me today. Say hello, gentlemen. Hey, guys. Hey, Astro. Thanks hey. for having us back, man. Yeah. Oh, glad to be here. Absolutely. Coming in hot 2023. Yeah, man. 2023. I'm I'm hoping uh I'm hoping to get this episode out today. Normally there's a lag. Um Ooh. you guys were on once before and you had kind of a sleeper hit because usually I try to angle, you know, I try to have an angle, I try to make it topical, I try to um I try to hit on something that's popular, but with you guys I just put the name Art of Darkness out there. And then we had a free form discussion just about literature and people loved it. I mean, it went it, it it was a popular episode so um you know you guys are always welcome back but also i i i gave you a lot of praise on that show for for your uh angle the angle you guys have for the art of darkness um now for people who haven't heard your show or the the prior prior uh episode i think maybe you should give a quick synopsis of what you guys do what the art of darkness is and like what your what what you bring to the table that's unique from all other podcasts, because you do have a very unique, uh, very unique show, highly recommended. And, uh, and then we'll get down to today's topic. Well, I think we should start with a, with a, with a neologism that Brad uh, came <laughs> up with for the pod, because of course, Art of Darkness is an extremely high minded podcast. It's not forever. I'm just kidding, <laughs> <laughs> but we, we it's, call it an. Upper middle brow, Kevin. Is what ah, we yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a yeah, right. It's a unibrow. Um, we call it uh, an effort pod. That's something that Brad came up with. Uh, and so we say we put in the work. But in summary, Art of Darkness, which you can find at artofdarkpod.com, is a podcast about the dark side of creativity. So we do in-depth biographical profiles ranging from two to six hours. <laughs> the sweet spot is usually around three hours of dead artists. Uh, and we have a rule. If someone passes away, we wait at least a year and a day before we cover them. We did uh, Norm MacDonald. That was a, a very popular episode. Brad did a great job. And the format of the show works uh, in such a way that we try to do two of these core episodes a month. So we try to cover two historical artistic creative figures a month and brad leads one and i get to play color commentary on that and then we take turns then i'll lead one and then brad gets to sort of you know take a turn then we also have we have guests come on we do dark room episodes we do occasional watch parties we have a really active telegram uh it's it's been com compared in format to uh the last podcast on the left although they're a little more rambunctious than we are, <laughs> I would say. Um, and of course, Brad and I are both writers. So we're, we're very interested in, uh, in art and the creative process and the culture. Uh, mm -hmm. and so, uh, it has a bit of a quality of like a, like a soap opera in the sense that there are through lines, there are motifs. If you're watching Twin Peaks, the Laura's theme will reappear periodically right. on Art of Darkness and it will be something like, Oh, here's heroin again. 
Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 a great breakdown, right? So, telling the stories of these artists and talking about the art along with them. You know, we do have some uh, some different uh, theses, sort of more obvious and maybe less obvious, that kind of emerge naturally out of the show, and not to give give those away too much. But but uh, you know, we're in a context of um, a sort of a loss of a sense of cultural history it feels like so i think we're making an effort to to um to kind of stoke that fire a little bit without being you know preachy about it just like hey by the way did you know about the life of james joyce you know that that just kind of reminding people that these people existed what they actually did and then also not uh not creating Hag, uh, hagiographies. Sorry, it's a little early for me to pronounce multi polysyllables. Um, but but not turning these people into saints, right? They're also human beings. Um, and to me, I find that not only tremendously interesting, but as a writer, tremendously. Um, I hate the word empowering, but it is kind of empowering where you realize, like, oh yeah, that dude kind of was a crappy human being. Um, and he still managed to kind of wrench this great novel or these great paintings or these great film out of nothing and create something, right? So, um, in that sense, it's very human as as well. In in Art of Darkness podcast is not an endorsement. No, that's true. <laughs> we have said that time and again. <laughs> the only hagiography we did was Crowley, because of course he wrote in an well, auto hagiography. Yeah, yeah. yeah, of course. I'm just kidding, but so, uh, yeah. So mm-hmm. I I was. Uh fortunate enough to be deemed worthy of coming on the show and i did uh, i i feel like i muscled my, my way out no i'm just you're coming you're coming back we'll talk I more so. behind the I scenes hope so. you're coming back though no no i'm just kidding that um <laughs> you guys were uh gracious enough to have me on to talk about one of my favorite writers of all time roberto bolaño who is certainly uh you know the prime you know figure for that for that topic oh he, uh, yeah he matches he matches that exactly yeah he's he, incredible artist but man that personal life gets it's yeah <laughs> and it comes through in his work now you're coming on today we're going to talk about fight club um and we're not going to talk about chuck palinuk really of course he's going to come up but it's not a this isn't a bio, biographical episode about chuck palinuk now besides the fact that he's still alive but but barring that would you say he's dark enough to make it onto your show? I'm going to guess no. I'm going to guess yeah. no. I but actually I could be I'm, wrong about that. I'm going to say he is because I believe that his father and again, I this is this is not the I haven't done the kind of research we would do for a corpse. Yeah, no. His father was either murdered or killed himself. Okay. And I believe Chuck Palnick may is that right, Kevin, or am I getting uh, that no, wrong? No, I don't know. I just want to say that yeah. uh, when we look for subjects for the show, we don't necessarily say, ooh, this person isn't dark enough because any human life fully lived, any artistic life fully lived is going to have it. Yeah. Do you know? So the, where where like somebody might not be appropriate for the show is more like like a politician or somebody who, you know, we don't really go in that direction more. But if the person is an artist, like – you know, God forbid if if Chuck Palahniuk you know passed away while the show was still going. He's a, I think he's still a pretty young man. He'd be a candidate. Could, yeah, yeah, he'd be sure. a candidate, no doubt. Yeah. Okay. Well, well his work is dark for his sure. His work is oh, dark, yeah. absolutely. And he's also like 
you know, as far as I know, based on Rogan interviews, he's like for a while was sort of like hand building a castle out in the mountains someplace, ah, like okay. up to very. And he was also involved in a group um, that sort of inspired Project Mayhem, and I'm I'm blanking on the name of it, but it was a sort of the same kind of group that started the whole Burning Man festival thing. Oh, the University all... of Oregon. <laughs> oh, I don't know. No, it was like uh, it wasn't the Discordians, but it was something like that. That oh, was interesting. Oh, Robert involved... Robert Anton Wilson, he'd be a good. Uh... Yeah, yeah, he's. Good. You've read, old... you've read Illuminatus? I have, yeah. We'll yeah. do an episode on him eventually for sure. So, He's... yeah, I think Palahniuk would be a great candidate personally. Um, okay. And super influential on the culture in a very idiosyncratic way, right? Like nobody quite walked the Chuck Palahniuk route. So That's true. Um, That's yeah. true. Well, look, I want to have a pretty comprehensive discussion of Fight Club. So now that we've introduced who you guys are, let's, uh, let's get right down to it. I was doing uh, a little bit of... Writing. I mean, I really just I saw a tweet on on Twitter that I strongly disliked that more or less claimed <laughs> that uh, Fight Club was a, a, a metaphor for uh, toxic masculinity and fascism, where it was because Chuck Palahniuk is gay. Therefore, he must be critiquing um, the the toxic masculinity in the book and in the film and that. And here's the real kicker, that the right wing, quote unquote, got the movie completely wrong. So I did a, a quick kind of off the cuff thread in response to that saying now lost to history because the communist mm. suspended my Twitter account. So I can't refer to my thread, but I'll read the tweet I'm talking about in a minute. I did a quick off the cuff thread to say, no, Tyler Durden is the hero. Now, some people, like our friend Rog Nationalist, one of the best people working today, uh, it liked my thread and retweeted it and gave me good feedback. But a whole bunch of people attacked me. Probably, well, I wouldn't say more. I, I got I got more support than I got hate. But I got some of the most hate I've ever gotten on Twitter uh, for claiming that Tyler Durden, not only is Tyler Durden the hero, but my contention is that Chuck Palahniuk intended him to be the hero that mm. Chuck Palahniuk sees him as the hero. Now I don't normally argue this way. Uh, author's intention I think is only relevant sometimes. Most of the time it's not. I don't think Chuck Palahniuk's intention is relevant here, but I brought it up because the wokesters are making his intention uh, an issue and they're making his homosexuality an issue and they're trying to use it as a uh, sort of way to lend credibility to their woke, you know, not, not only to their woke agenda in general, but to their version of literary criticism towards the movie, uh, which I don't think even is really literary criticism. I don't consider isms to be true literary criticism. So if you have a socialism, a feminist, a, a homosexual read, I don't consider that literary criticism i consider it to be um you're sort of uh, expounding upon your agenda and you're you're like using art you're trying to subjugate art to your ideology uh mm -hmm. because you have an agenda now i say all this because i did the thread uh and i saw the response now the, the the original tweet that said um because chuck palinuk is gay therefore this is a critique of toxic masculinity the original tweet got like 500,000 likes, so it was massively popular. 
So I decided to write an essay about it. And it was just going to be a quick one-off essay, like the Freudian, straightforward Freudian read of um, Fight Club that I was going to then supersede with a Nietzschean read. Uh, And when I say supersede, I mean the Nietzschean read is the one in which Tyler Durden becomes the hero because he's like the ubermensch, right? It was going to be quick. It was going to be noncommittal. It was going to be, you know, a one-off. But in researching for this essay, I found a massive cultural engineering uh, effort taking place throughout all levels of media to re to retcon this movie as some sort of a banner or a flag for the woke that they're trying to use and like retrofit it because Chuck Palahniuk is gay. They're trying to retrofit it as this like pro LGBTQ anti toxic masculinity manifesto, which it it it, it is irrefutably not that. <laughs> so mm. what I'd like mm. to do, I'm going to get more into that in a minute. Uh, what I'd like to do is sort of break the movie down to an extent, discuss the merits of the film and the book. Well, compare and contrast, but. But today's episode is really about the film. We're going to use the book to hopefully enhance our understanding of the of the film. I also would like to talk about the retconning and the cultural legacy of Fight Club because the cultural legacy is now 20 years old and it's changed over time. And lastly, uh, because we're all of the same generation, late Gen X, early millennial, uh, which is say younger Gen X or, or, or older millennial between the three of us um, – mm-hmm. I'd like to talk about what it was like when the movie came out at the time and the and the and the wake of the film for the first couple of years, and then maybe we can use that as a way to discuss the way it's morphed. So, uh, are you guys conscientious or aware of everything I'm talking about? Have you seen the woke try to reappropriate Fight Club in the last, basically after 2016, 17? I I had noticed it, not to the, I mean, you dug into it a little bit and so clearly came up, found more examples and things, but I was kind of conscious of it. I do remember it being in the last, you know, number of years being, being held up as this anti-toxic masculinity kind of propaganda piece almost and not really saying much about it, but thinking like, well, that's not what that movie means to me. So, uh. Um, I hadn't seen the, I hadn't really seen the, the Palahniuk's, um, personal homosexuality being used quite as part of that until very recently. Um, but, but obviously that's there and being, and being done. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I I could almost assume this was going on, but I know I'm not up on the discourse around this. I mean, but obviously they try to wear every single thing as a skin suit, so. Yeah, it's that's not, exactly not surprising. What you can have nothing. Uh, I mean, you know, and I, I believe we will, we will talk about this at some point, but you know, the, the, the volume that I have of Fight Club in front of me has his afterward, uh, where he, he makes the point that somewhere where Fight Club has never been heard of way out somewhere in like Bolivia or I can't remember exactly where there's still this ancient practice where the men will get together and just beat the shit out of each other. And sometimes the women will fight. They do this once a year. They, they chant, we are men, we are men, we are men. And then, you know, they beat, beat each other bloody. Then they go on and get married. (laughs) Like, like there's something primal and essential about the concept of fight club. He did not create it. It exists 
inherently within human nature. And of course, essentialism is very problematic, isn't it? So, I mean, that one point alone, uh, kind of gives the lie to that, that counter argument or that weird rereading, uh, of, of Fight Club. One, uh, thing I'll say though is the quality of the, of the book, the quality of the film, um, is such that you can lay all of these other, these, these different meanings on top of it without it, because it never explicates, it never exposits, ah, this is what Fight Club means. Mm-hmm. So that is one of this, that is one of the signs of great art, uh, that there's that room inside of it to, to play around with it. Yeah, yeah, I agree, but there's still there's still an egregious misreads. There's still I pur- I would of course yeah, without yeah. a doubt. Yeah, it's not a Rorschach blot. There's right. there's some stuff going on. Um, I I did want to mention real quick up top. Um, I looked up the name Durden because I for some reason thought that it meant death. Uh, hmm. but I I actually looked it up just now, and it says that it's an English name. Variant of Dearden, nickname from the old French dur, hard, dent, tooth. Nice. So, which is quite. That's on purpose. Well, I I suspect it is. And then, of course, the the name Tyler uh, is from the old French, a tile maker, Middle English. And the name from Tyler is the Middle English. The name was originally an occupational name for a house builder or one who lays bricks. So you've got. The brick builder, and then you've got the, the the hard to yeah. It's very just a very interesting name. And then of course in in masonry, a tiler is someone who guards the guards the lodge. So I I, and I suspect that none of these things are um, incidental. Yeah. Anyway. Well, let's let's dispel uh, one read the the, the gay <laughs> read from the right. All right. Uh, which I did take seriously when I first encountered it. And the, the, the gay read is that the fighting is a metaphor for sex and the fact that it's underground and in the in the basement is that it's uh, sort of closeted homosexuality and that mm. this film or the book, I should say, is this sort of um, coming out experience for, for Palinuk. Uh I don't know if I buy it. Uh, it was worth considering, and it's mentioned here and there in some of the woke articles, but that's not really what the woke gay read is. The woke gay read is different. The right-wing gay read is that this is just a big metaphor for homosexuality, and if you watch this film and you like it, then you're, like, participating in this guy's, like, violent sexual fantasy. Right. Well, yeah, see, I don't, I, I don't like... And and to me, it doesn't matter if Talonix gay or not. No, me neither. Me neither. Right? Like, and then that doesn't mean it. It him being him being a gay guy doesn't mean it's there isn't homosexual quote unquote themes, and it doesn't right. mean that there are. Right. Um. But I I am generally I I don't like when everybody tries to make anything about two men homoerotic. Thank you. In any way, exactly. I mean, wrestling, martial arts football all these things are ways that men do relate to each other yeah and you know there seems to be this thing from outside when you don't understand that you're like yeah but their their legs are bare so it must be gay somehow yeah it's it's just so it's so skin deep and so not appreciating what what those relationships are men are in part and we managed to keep it under control and that's why the world keeps turning but we are in part violent yeah 
we like there's violence speaks to us on a very deep level and if from the outside you get that confused with sex you're missing part of what the yeah, human our, drama actually is male violence is a, is built in and it has yeah. to be dealt with in some way mm-hmm. and it's dealt with through ritual um joseph campbell and robert Bly talk about this a lot of other people talk about it too but they're explicit in saying that if you don't if you get rid of ritual from society then all of these uh urges that we're supposed to be sublimating are going to come out and and cause problems so uh and and a lot of the problems are self-harm you know um robert Bly talks about this in the book iron john uh where he talks about if 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 violent ritual is removed from society then the young men who don't go through this sort of cathartic um uh, communalizing experience with the rest of the group will will go out and he gives examples of skydivers and cliff jumpers now there's more to it than that of course like it's it's just like that's it's an inherently manly thing to do to cheat death and to to really do have an exhilarating experience but um you know when you're out maiming yourself on your dirt bike and your four-wheeler and things like that like there's an there's an element of self-harm that is basically turning the violence inward upon yourself and i don't necessarily think this is a bad thing it just needs to be understood recognized for what it is and uh harnessed because in my opinion and we don't have to really get into this but if you don't harness that impulse you have things like spree shooters um yeah and other problems other problems Mm -hmm. as well Uh, but real quick this is why i throw out the the um interpretation that fight club is a gay male fantasy uh, it's because it decontextualizes the violence in the story. If you do a close reading of the book and the film, which I did for this episode, it's simply not the case that the violence has anything to do with the sexual desires of any of the characters. So, so it's, 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 it's just not textually supported at all. And hopefully throughout the course of this conversation, we sure. prove that to the listener. Right. And if it was, what's Marla doing there? That's I mean, the it whole just, it doesn't, yes, that's exactly yeah, right. It doesn't, I just have to quickly say a couple of things, uh, Astral that, uh, so I did poke a little further because I was pretty sure that Duden means death and it does in, in Swedish. Of course, if you watch the great seventh seal, the Bergman film, pretty sure the, the word for the, the figure of death is Duden. So if you put the two words together, Tyler is somebody who builds a house or guards the front door and Durden is death. So we're, I mean, it's right there in the name of the character. This is the character that's going to take the, take the protagonist on this journey into the realm of death. I mean, it's on its face right there. That's much more important. That to me, that's the, that's the heart of this story. And it's almost like a classical, it's almost like a, like folklore. I don't think. Durden represents the character of the Grim Reaper, though. I think he's no, more no. like the death drive in yes. Norton. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, I wouldn't equate him. Okay, so that's good. I think that works. But, I th- Go ahead. Yeah. No, and then the other thing that I want to say uh, on a personal note, I have genuinely, unironically gotten into sumo wrestling over the past uh It's pretty fucking months. based. It I- is so... It 
amazing. I've We're like in it, day yeah. eight. I think it's called a Basho. I think it's the first uh, of the year, 2023. They do six grand sumos a year. They'll live stream it. And like the early matches in the day, nobody's there. But then I think by the end, it's the the Yokozuna and the, the, the higher ranks are there. And you can go online, YouTube, grand sumo, and watch 30 minutes of just raw athleticism and these guys are like they're beasts and sometimes they come out bloody and they do things that you you watch for a few months and you're 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 consistently surprised no ads no you know garbage in between just pure action for 30 minutes i I, I, anyway it but it that's a perfect example of a society that understood this and understands this on a basic level we need this ritual and it's surrounded by ritual like the the I don't want to turn this into a sumo cast, but like the yokozuna are considered Shinto priests. Once you achieve that highest level, you're you're held to these extraordinarily high standards. They get to do special things. It's all extremely formal, extremely ritualized, and it serves to sublimate that 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 desire, that urge to see. 400 pound men slap each other silly it's somewhere yeah, well in us. and these guys yeah. become like the avatars you know for everyone mm-hmm. who's not participating in the violence right. it's like a way 100 percent. you know everyone knows it's it's kind of their it's like that tool right. song vicarious it's their yeah. way to vicariously experience you know so okay look the the sumo thing actually brings up a good point that the cultural legacy so let's let's make something clear um, I'm really interested. I hope I get some feedback here because I'm really interested to hear from people who are much younger who found this movie online um, what their perception mm. of this movie is because as somebody who watched everything play out from before the movie came out until today, it is undeniable that Fight Club plays a central role. It is probably – the most important movie of the last 25 years. I mean, can you think of any movie that has even comes close to having as much of a cultural impact? And I'll, I'll, I'll back that up. Uh, but I, I very few, I mean, it's in the vernacular, right? You don't talk about X, Y, Z. Yeah. Snowflakes. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's certainly in the discussion to me. I think that's, that's a that's a fair assessment. Uh, somebody else might have a slightly different take, but I think it it, it has to be in the top five, three Easily. most influential movies of the last twenty years or twenty plus years. I guess. Yeah, at this point. I think it Absolutely. came out in ninety nine. So ninety nine. Yeah. For me, right? Yeah. Like, um, so in the nineties, you would hear whispers sometimes of like underground bare knuckle boxing fights um, that that were that weren't. They weren't uh, they weren't uh, spontaneous. They were they were organized, and they were usually set up illegally uh, in some hard to find place, and and you, you have to be in the know to find out where they are. And I never personally went to one. And they would talk about MMA, uh, mm-hmm. mixed martial arts, but it was like this hush hush thing. It was very difficult to find. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I spent some time in Northern California. I spent some time in New York City, and. Both places, I was kind of around people who would go to them, and some of them would even, uh, you know, be learning a martial art to fight. But it was absolutely not part of like the broader culture. It, you never heard about it in any mainstream places ever anywhere. Mm. And then, like over time, 
Muay Thai and BJJ started to take off, especially most of this was in California um, and then New York City. But in New York City, it was uh, it was a little bit different, though, because in New York City, they had this aggressive, you know, fight culture and there's boxing matches and, and wrestling matches and everything in New York. So it was kind of like baked into like the vibe of the city in a way. But in California, it was much more leaking out to like the general public. So I remember like in maybe 2003 or four, and mind you, this is after fight club. I remember seeing like a public BJJ demonstration and a, a mock fight um, like in, you know, in the park or something. And it started to sort of show up on TV. And and of course it started on pay-per-view and now it's, mm. It's not only is is mixed martial arts everywhere. It's like a it's like a huge UFC. I remember UFC. I don't remember when it started, but I remember people talking about UFC in like the mid nineties, uh, late nineties maybe. It went from being this underground thing that was whispered about that you only came across if you were around uh, a certain type of person, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And and then it started I can see to, Brad perk up here. It started to matriculate <laughs> out into. The wider culture and you started to come across it just in your daily life uh conversations started to park uh spark up but then you had the phenomenon in in addition to that stuff catching on and becoming more popular and becoming more mainstream all right so so just to, to make it clear like what you have today with the ufc and joe rogan being an announcer and stuff like that it was not like that back then no, when it Fight Club came out, nowhere. that did not exist. It right. did not it exist. exist. UFC you wouldn't was a go video... to a sports bar. Yeah, yeah, go UFC, ahead. Brent. UFC was a videotape right next to Faces of Death. That's what UFC was Exactly in right. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. And it was, it was, uh, I just, I mean, I could tell stories. I remember people, I just, I just, I guess I'll embellish one quick, quick story. I just remember like being hammered outside a bar in California and this dude came up to us and he was like asking for money because he was like trying to be an MMA fighter and he had this duffel bag and he fucking Whoa. like kept talking to us and he opened his duffel bag up and it was full of like knives and size and like uh whatever those hooked right. those hooked uh weapons are I can't remember what they're called now and it was all like ninja shit oh my god and he was talking about how he was going to bring it to this fucking underground fight and like, you know, if like you pay wow. a certain amount of money, you, you can, you can fight with weapons. It was crazy. You uh, met anyway. a, a real karate man on the street. Yeah. That's wow. a serious. Yeah. I, this and, is and, a... and the thing I, another thing I'm trying to drive home is back then the people involved in this shit were criminals. It was straight up criminals <laughs> doing this. Like, yeah. Right. Man. Yeah. Well, and, and the UFC, the, the, the accomplishment of that media brand. And what they what they did is is pretty staggering. You could do a marketing serious marketing case study on what they accomplished. Yeah, they're they fully, got ca- fully mainstream, totally insane. Totally in a very out. short period of time, they got cage fighting on the local sports bar. That would have been un- unthinkable in the nineties. Yeah, it yeah. Just now, and in full yeah. contact, full contact. Mm-hmm. Now, simultaneously, from what I'm talking about, how the the underground scene went mainstream at the same time. You then had, and this was directly because of Fight Club, you then had actual Fight clubs springing up everywhere where people, I mean, the whole, Chuck Palahniuk says the impetus for this book is one day he showed up to work with a black eye and nobody said a word to him about it. And he was like, oh my God. And he like 
came up with this whole scenario. That started to happen. Dudes started to show up to work with black eyes. And when you asked them, how'd you get the black eye? They tried to recruit you to their actual fight club. And the afterword to fight club that Kevin mentioned, which is very important. If you care about this movie and this book, you have to go read this. It's, it's critically important to understand the book, but it's also critical. Let me rephrase that. This book is actually very simple to understand. This book is very straightforward. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of this would have been necessary if it wasn't for the woke people trying to ruin America. <laughs> and and we're having this conversation to refute their bullshit. So anyway, um, he says in that afterward that, uh, you know, spontaneous fight clubs have started up all over the place. And the 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 opening paragraphs or few paragraphs of that afterwards is him being brought into a fight club. And him being like, hey, bud, like, did you know I wrote that book? And the guy, (laughs) A, being like, wait, there was a book? And then B, like, totally fanning out and, like, thrilled beyond belief that he has the guy who invented Fight Club in his Fight Club. Right. He's got Uh, Tyler. He's got Tyler Durden on his hands. So he's he's got Tyler Durden on his hands. And, and, you know, Chuck Chuck Palahniuk is pretty ripped. Um, Yeah, he's a fit dude for sure. So. So this whole underground thing sprung up and it just it just went crazy. It went everywhere. So, um, you know, of all these right wing online subcultures that that really catalyzed uh, in 2014 on Gamergate, Gamergate's important to this whole discussion. But the only one of these sort of subcultures that I knew existed before Gamergate was uh, PUA. Uh, somehow I think it's, I think it's because they were on YouTube. They would have YouTube videos and I would come across like Roosh. Uh, I think I went to Hartiste's blog back then, but I wasn't really interested in it. I was like married. I didn't really like need pickup culture. I didn't really care about it, but they incorporated fight club language. Um, and, and apparently the incels did too. I wasn't really aware of them until, you know, Elliot Roger and Sandy Hook, but apparently their forums and everything, they were using language from Fight Club uh, all the time. Oh. Hmm. And then, of that course, I, that I wasn't quite aware of. Yeah, that, yeah after, I didn't know about that. Yeah, after I mean, I wasn't there, so I I'm not saying this as somebody who was there, but but uh, I've been reading, you know, in researching this film, that all of these subcultures incorporated either language concepts or just Tyler Durden as like a figurehead for them. As like a hero figure. Now, the thing is, is all of these groups kind of get catalyzed first through Gamergate and then the 2016 election. And when Trump wins, suddenly half the country becomes snowflakes. So the the Fight Club influence that may or may not have been there, I think it's I think it's pretty clear that it was. I mean, the articles I saw show, you know, screenshots from these old forums and stuff everyone's suddenly a snowflake and everybody's talking about a snowflake. And I made the argument that even like Ben uh, Shapiro's, the facts don't care about your feelings is his way of calling people a snowflake. So, Mm. you know, 16, 17 years later, the influence of fight club, it's like built itself up to this juggernaut of, of going from the underground to mainstream to the point where, you know, the sitting president's side is using Fight clubs, you know, terminology and concepts to jeer at the other side. And it's so baked in, you don't even notice it. Uh, You know what would be a fun one-two screening evening would be to watch Donald Trump's favorite 
film. What's that? Uh, Blood Home Alone, Home Alone 2? Oh, Bloodsport. 1988's Bloodsport. Yeah. <laughs> Watch that. If you youngins, are you, if you're out there and you want to understand the difference in the vibe between the, the late 80s and the late 90s, sit down, screen Bloodsport. You're going to love it. It's a mm-hmm. banger. Mm-hmm. And then screen Fight Club. That hmm. that would be an education because they're very kind of similar. It's they're both about fight clubs, underground fight clubs. Yeah. But the way the one handles it and the way the other handles it tells you almost everything you need to know about the zeitgeist. That is or, mm-hmm. absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. And that's okay, that's I, Donald Trump's favorite movie. It says on the Wikipedia he said that oh, okay. Bloodsport is his okay. favorite movie, which I is never heard that hilarious. Before. I mean, how can you if you didn't like him before? Right? <laughs> what his favorite song is "November Rain" and his favorite movie is Bloodsport. I mean, what more do you need to say? I think he might be playing a bit of a character, right? Well, no, 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 it's, it's the real him. But your the your troll, point, the troll in chief. Mm. Your point yeah, is is excellent. It's excellent because Fight Club was like the last gasp of this masculine, you know, self-assertion and this this assertion of masculine virtue. Whereas before it was just, you know, Rambo, Die Hard, Bloodsport, all Steven Seagal's movies, Arnold Schwarzenegger's movies. It was just like the dominant mode, the dominant mindset of the country. By the time Fight Club comes around, it's already like, this is just an attempt to reassert yeah, we were like rem- that's, that's draining away. Yeah, we were trying to like re- my Fight Club was like an effort to remember it almost, even yeah, though it was yeah, only like sure. ten years before. For yeah. sure, which is crazy. But look how bad it's yeah. come since then. So anyway, I was trying to make the argument through all that that the movie picked up steam in influence to the point where, to use Kevin's excellent term, it became baked into our society. So the question is like, how much do these kids even realize that like it took some time for it to like to build up steam and it wasn't even like that before. Yeah. Um and and I don't even know like how much do people even watch the movie? Do they just look at the memes and like repeat the memes? Yeah, you know, I don't know, question. but but then in 2020 when <clears throat> Biden, you know, quote unquote square quotes, biggest scare quotes in history won the election. Um there was an effort for the left to turn it back on the right and to start calling the right snowflakes because they were saying like the election denial was us us being snowflakes. Uh, but it didn't really catch on. Right. And the reason it didn't catch on, of course, is because the left are lame fucking losers. And like you can't have like a, a, a hip, you know, jargon fueled, you know, motto like this. It has to be this dour, sad face lecture scolding, which is right. why – the tweet that I talked about, which I'll read now, that blew up. But the the attempt of the mainstream media, because it was the mainstream media trying to reappropriate the the snowflake thing, and those people didn't want to go for it. The the woke didn't want to go for it. So let's um, mm-hmm. you know, another thing I want to make clear to like younger people trying to assess this film and its cultural legacy is that homosexuality was not really taboo. At the time, really, but it was not as accepted as it is now. Um, for you example, mean like in when the film came out, like in nineteen, the film came out when the yeah. book came out, even so. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think that's fair to say we were somewhere on this progression towards what we're in now, for sure. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was never really in my lifetime terribly uh, – the culture never seemed terribly antagonistic to gays ever, really. Yeah. But being in the closet was a thing back <laughs> then. Um, and Palahniuk wasn't in the closet, but it wasn't like – thrown in your face that he was gay you know right um i remember when i finally read the book in like 2004 or 5 i i think i had already known he was gay but he mentions it in the end there in the in the afterwards so so it came out pretty soon if not right away yeah i wasn't conscious that he i don't know when i came across him that that knowledge that he was he was gay and I, I do remember finding that out after already being having read the book and being a fan of the film and not being honestly affected by it at all. At all. Like it didn't it had no effect. I mean, it was like, oh, well, that's interesting. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I need um, to reiterate here. We're only talking about it because the woke is trying to use it as a hammer. Yeah. No. And that's, they're <laughs> yeah. trying to use it. Well, this is the thing that seems like that's happening is they're committing the what they've decided is a crime of essentialism. So he's gay. Therefore, it must be propaganda on our side somehow which yeah. doesn't to me i don't even understand like well it, you, gotta, it's gone... you have to make a you have to make an argument if well let's let's that. be clear though too the, the film yeah. does play with a certain degree of tension between durden and uh, the narrator it's there but it's there in a winky kind of it's mm. almost part of the humor of it well uh, yeah, that's how okay. i read the film well be more specific because i watched the film twice i mean i've seen it probably five six times but in preparation for all the writing I was doing in this episode, I watched it twice specifically to to see if that's in the movie. And I decided that it's not. But I I'm willing to hear your argument because I uh, think think I know I'll just you I'll just say that. I mean, Brad Pitt is treated as a sex object and a, a fetish object in the film. He's yeah. treated as a, like a. Yeah. I mean, that for, for, is that for Norton? Yeah, exactly. I, well, right. I mean, I think it's I think it's it's more for the viewer than for than for Norton. Yeah. And it's it's ironic. And someone I I don't know if it was on a conversation we recorded or not, but somebody pointed out how how amusing it is that they're you know, they're on the bus and they're look is that what a man looks like? <laughs> and then but then you you cut to like Brad Pitt. Just in, in the best shape that he's ever been in. In that yeah. iconic, like, yeah. lean like, back, like, the f- most right. famous still from the movie, practically. Yeah. So and he looks all... like the underwear model. Right. Yeah. So they're, they're playing. It's a very, it's a very meta film. I mean, he points yeah. out the cigarette burn later. Uh, you know, it's, it's like the projectionist missed the changeover. Anyway. Yeah. But no, I'm not saying that like Norton is, is having some sort of like, uh, homoerotic fixation on, on Pitt. But, but I do think the way that, that the film presents Pitt presents him as an object of, of desire. Yeah, yeah, and and sure, gay men are going to be excited about it in the same way women are, but none of that means it's it's a gay film, and none of that means no. there's sexual tension between Norton and Pitt. I mean, right? There's just, there's just yeah, not, that's not what I'm saying at all. No. Okay. Yeah, I I don't think there's any homoeroticism in this movie unless you claim, and the left does claim this. They claim that male on male contact, especially shirtless, is homoerotic, which it's it's not. They're they're saying that in an attempt to appropriate what's going on in this film. And they're saying that in an attempt really to appropriate 
all of Western civilization, culture, culture of Western civilization, because yeah. there's that book, um, the song of Achilles. And the whole thing is like a gay love story. I mean, think about, think about all this, this gay stuff, right? The people, the, the, the most concise argument I've found that fight club is a homoerotic, you know, story came from the magazine Jezebel, which is a, which is a cultural <laughs> engineering feminist, uh, journal. And then uh, uh, the book Song of Achilles is written by a woman, and it's about a supposed gay relationship Achilles has with, I think, I can't remember now. I don't think it's Patroclus. Uh, one of his one of his uh, other hoplites, which isn't in the Iliad. It's not there. So so she she's, of course, uh, superimposing that. And they, they superimpose it overall male relationships i mean right men yeah, we, yeah. Mm. pre pre-modern i don't i don't i shouldn't say pre-modern because it some of it is post-enlightenment but i say let's say pre-20th century literature depicts male-on-male affection much differently than we would have p- depict it now um and i'm thinking about uh like moby dick for example um not only is there like this relationship between Queequeg and uh, Ishmael but uh Herman Melville has letters written to Nathaniel Hawthorne where it seems like he's pining after him right um so yeah, there was a lot of poetic language particularly in the written word to each other that was highly affectionate and to us yeah. our sort of paranoid modern mentality sounds like because we've gay coded every, everything exactly yeah, exactly so it right. Sounds like it's, but it, yeah, it's like my heart longs for you, my dear yeah. friend. You're like, oh, is that guy yeah. gay? Yeah, like, yeah. And and it's maybe mostly... he just likes his friend, you know, misses his friend. To, is to that be okay? Clear, I haven't done mm. a thorough, comprehensive, you know, cross sectional analysis of this, but it seems to be time and time again women making these claims that these mm. that these are gay relationships. Mm. Well, they're writing slash fiction, right? Right. Yeah, I mean that's in I have trying an essay to ship history, right? In my blog, where I say that this is their way of like, uh, uh, it's sexually fulfilling to them because if these violent men are actually engaged in some form of homoeroticism, the women get the best of both worlds. They're they're not threatened, mm-hmm. right, by the violence, but they're also f- sexually fulfilled by the fantasy. Uh, Brokeback Mountain, written by a right. woman. You know right. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I'm I kind of fine with everybody having the sexual fantasies that they want, where I guess I start to, it starts to um, bother me a little bit is the um, sublimated violence rituals of my youth were actually incredibly important for me. Yeah. And important to for have the entire culture. Right. And to have those sort of like turned into like, maybe that was just gay. Uh, uh, you yeah. know what I mean? Kind of like, so I'll, let me just give you sort of a little bit of my Fight Club background, okay? And where I was, because I think it actually helps this conversation. So Fight Club came out when I was in high school, right? I was a sophomore or a junior in high school. I was the first person I knew to watch Fight Club. Nobody recommended it to me. And nobody I knew had seen it. I don't even remember why I watched it, to be honest. And I was engrossed. And I was recommending it to Did you see, did you see it in the, the theater? I didn't. I saw it, like, immediately when it came out on video, right? And recommending it to everybody. But at the same time, I was playing football. And I was a... 
I was an angry young man who, if I hadn't had outlets, I would have been in a lot of fights. I was like a stunt kid, like jumped off stuff, climbed stuff I shouldn't have, right? Was like looking to hurt myself indirectly, not in a, not in a self-mutilation way, but right. And, and nothing has changed in nothing all these years. <laughs> and I was, and I know this is probably maybe is surprising to you guys, maybe not so much Kevin, cause he knows me a bit, but it's probably surprising to Art of Darkness listeners. I loved the violence of football. I don't even watch football now. I loved hitting people. I loved getting hit. I was like, I wanted to like smash my head through the world, right? That was my attitude when I was like a 16, 17 year old man. That's a normal attitude for an adolescent boy. It is. You got testosterone coursing through your blood, just like driving you. Right, right, exactly. And so Fight Club was this angle. Fight Club was a, was a, uh, artistic manifestation of this, like, yeah, you can kind of channel this stuff. It's not easy to do and you got to kind of give it room, but like you can kind of channel this stuff into a productive format, right? So like, yeah, you gotta oh, score touchdowns. Right, right. Well, no, but, but, but it is, but it gets more than that because once you sort of learn to kind of rein it in, it's all 16 year old and it's like, you know, once you learn to rein it in, it becomes discipline and responsibility mm-hmm. and capability, right? It turns into these actual positive virtues, but it has to go through this transmography, has to be transformed from unbridled testosterone into like, I'm going to do this, right? Um, it's her. Yeah. So for me, Fight Club was a film that kind of helped me, uh, in it helped me intellectualize that in a way. And, and to then be called, well, it's just like a homoerotic fantasy is like to, for me is kind of in a way to partially dismiss my entire like maturation process and call well, that gay somehow. I consider it like civilization threatening disposition. I, I yeah. mean, to, to, to take away what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. which is what they're trying to do. You can't have civilization with that gone. That is the only thing that has ever created and driven civilization was that impulse in men to do that. Mm-hmm. So, so right. to take that away, it's, it's over. It's, it's over. I, I, yeah, I tend to agree with that. Like, I think, yeah, I, I mean, you can maybe overstate that, but, but there is a thing where you, if you undermine all of these processes, um, yeah, you don't get good results. Like it's if not you, that's not going to be a positive. Society thing. of of gay effeminized men. You have created a society that is totally unthreatening to women. Mm. And I think that that is the impulse here to to mm. an extent. That is a huge part of the impulse here because if they want to be in power, and I don't mean empowered, I mean mm. in power mm. running the show. Right. They have to have a pliant society that that is not going to threaten them. And this is how they're doing it. it they're, they're doing it by giving children. They're doing it by genital mutilation of children. They're doing it by giving them hormone blockers. And they're doing it by, uh, you know, I could say some ugly things I won't say, but but this whole grooming thing and the, and the, mm. the, the attempt to encourage or at least allow pedophilia, you know, that – the Creates. pedophilia thing is wild because yeah. we've, as I think, especially for still youngish men, we're not young men, but sort of middle-aged, uh, you know, coded men. Uh, we've seen how slippery the slope is. Yeah, I, we watched. I, it. We watched, we watched it. it happen, and so I think everybody's 
double, triple, quadruple on guard now. And that's that stuff is wild. That's where you get guys who are like, well, maybe I'm center right. And, you know, I go to church, but I'm not, you know, a fin- totally fanatical. And, you know, and da-da. that's how you turn people into like wood chipper posters. Yeah, because. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, my argument mm-hmm. here is that the attempt to deracinate Fight Club is part of this whole process because Fight Club served as like an animus for men to sort of assert themselves in America and and, mm-hmm. and, and in the West. Um, so it is like prime target number one for them to bring down. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is this sort of um, thread. I don't know what the word to call it here. This, this vein through gay culture that is extremely antagonistic to women. And in my opinion, the word Mm. misogyny, the word misogyny, I think the word misogyny and the word uh, homoeroticism can only be used in the context of of homosexuality because a homoerotic play or story is one in which there's an attempt to sexualize men uh, between each other for the sexual gratification of other men. So a man can write a homoerotic story, um, but you can't superimpose homoeroticism into something that's not there. A woman can't write a homoerotic story. She's writing a, a straight it's, – it's, it's because it's meant to attract straight women, the, the, the homoeroticism, whereas a gay man – is attempting to like convey the sexual attraction between two men. Mm-hmm. You, I can see why someone would want to go there and say Fight Club is doing that. But to repeat myself, it's simply not borne out by the story. May I ask? Yeah. Go ahead, Astro. Finish the thought. Well, the, yeah. the, and, and then I was trying. I'm trying to say that the words homoeroticism and misogyny are misused constantly and the only time those two words apply is when you have an actual gay source so so it misogyny is supposed to be hatred of women right and the abuse of women for because of some sort of uh distaste for women the only men who can actually take it to that level are gay men because they have no use for women they have no use for women. And some gay men, their animus, their driving force for them is a loathing and hatred of 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 women. The well, same don't you think there's a sort of a terminal that, insult? That word that can gets carry there? a lot of – well, go ahead, Bert. Well, I, 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 just let me finish the thought here yeah, and then yeah. I'll let you guys come in uh, because yeah. the, I, I it's important to add this last thing here, which is that if you want to see true misogyny, read uh, American Psycho. Right. The, that sure. that is what misogyny is. Read the poems of Allen Ginsberg, which I had the unfortunate experience <laughs> of doing in college. <sighs> that is true misogyny. Not not objectifying women, not sexualizing women, not even depicting violence against women, which I don't enjoy. But depicting violence against women is not does not make misogyny look at david lynch especially twin peaks firewalk with me the brutal violence against women in that movie unsettling hard to watch violence against Mm. women that is Mm -hmm. not a misogynist movie 
No. Right. It's extremely sympathetic to women in that movie. So my argument, and I'm going to read that tweet thread in a minute, but I want you guys to respond. I just threw a lot at you guys, so I, well, I need you. If I may, real quickly. So I'm not familiar with the like the queer reading of, of Fight Club um, as much as you fellows might be. So I I wonder if you could clarify for me is one of their uh, their thoughts possibly that Palinuk, is a gay man writing in the '90s, is maybe watching them. Which, which they did and which a lot of, uh, sort of queer and gay people have sort of pointed out. They kind of took the teeth out of queer culture because it was so underground, especially exactly. like, ma- right. So exactly you right. could possibly say that I could see how you could do a very pedantic academic reading of this saying that Fight Club is in part a metaphor for, uh, you know, Palinuk's concern that queer culture, which was so radical and so is being co-opted by the mainstream. I yeah. could see that. And if I was, you know, if I was uh, the head of an English class and somebody turned in that essay, I would go, ah, that's a fair enough reading. Yeah. yeah. But is that really what it's, what right. it's well, capital let, let, let A about? Well, yeah. And, and well, then, Brad, sorry, let me, let me I'll make a point on that. Kevin after go Brad, ahead, uh, let yeah. Brad come in. No, no, I'll let Brad come in. And okay. Yeah. So, Kevin. cause Kevin, I think I, I think you're right on that, Kevin. I think where it gets even stranger is where this then gets turned into somehow it's a movie against toxic masculinity. And then somehow it's like it's like an inverted critique of fascism. Like it it somehow gets caught up in all of these other woke things that don't necessarily relate to each other. Like, OK, let's say for the purpose of argument, it is some kind of latent gay fantasy, which I don't think it is. But OK. Um, that doesn't also mean it's like against f- it's it's a it's a commentary on fascism somehow. Right. Or a commentary on on what what quote unquote toxic masculinity is. And that's I think part of the problem is it's like you, you, you found a little foothold to make it a propaganda piece about one thing. And somehow now it agrees with your entire worldview somehow because of that. Right. It's very bizarre. Um, it's not a that- propaganda piece. Whatever to fight club is, it's not propaganda. That right there, what Brad just said, that's, that is the seed of this entire conversation. That right there concisely states what I think and what I'm trying to elaborate on. That is very well said. Thank you for doing that. Uh, Sure. Um, Yeah. Listen, I'm going to make a quick final comment for this section. I realize that we're talking a lot about the cultural sort of um, input output of this film, which is good. I wanted to do that, but I also Mm. want to talk about the contents directly. So if you guys are good on time, mm-hmm. we take a quick coffee break. I'll do a musical interlude love and we'll it. come I back. Love it. You're reading my mind. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. This is why, uh, this is why I, I work with you guys. We're all yeah. the same. I'll just, it, it just real quickly before we move on to the next segment, I will volunteer that in 1999, I was one of those kids who I was not on the football team. Uh-huh. I was on the other track. I was on the blow up the world track. And this film served as a kind of sublimation of that. And it, and also a message. It was almost like a message in the, in, in a bottle when we went to see it in the theater. Oh, we're not alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good. I'm glad you brought that up. I want to quickly just give my angle from like watching this movie in 1999 because people have to understand what this movie did. This movie was important for literally everyone. It doesn't matter what like vibe you had or what your 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 style was. Um because I was a skater 
in the 90s. I was a skateboarder. And in a, in the 90s as a skater, people don't get this. Like, you had the mm. fucking fight. You you People tried to beat the shit out of you for being a skater all the time. So I am not a fighter. I'm, I was never a big guy. I was a skinny kid in high school. I didn't start lifting weights until I was an adult. So I was this, like, skinny skater kid wearing, like, oversized clothes that ended up in all these fights in high school because people tried to fuck with me all the time. And, uh, you know, I can't really say I ever beat the shit out of anybody, but nobody ever beat the shit out of me. I, I held my own. Um, you know, I hung out in New York a lot. You have to have a certain disposition to get by, especially back then. It's totally different now. It's like the hipster capital of the world. None of that existed back then. None of that. People don't, don't understand, like, the 90s were like the midpoint between taxi driver and fucking, I don't even know what, like sex in the city. Girls. Girls, right. thank you. Yes, yeah. girls, exactly. <laughs> so I so I hung out. Uh, I went to art school, and I hung out with art hoes. So all my friends were skaters, artists, and all the girls we hung out with were art hoes or hippie mm -hmm. chicks, right? Mm -hmm. So we were like sort of on the fringes uh, back then to, to an extent. Right. When we watched this movie, it wasn't like this tough guy, like go out and fight thing. It was like, first of all, um, what's her name? Marla. What's her? Oh. What's the actress's name in real life? Hel uh, Helena Bonham. Helena Bonham Carter yeah. was Carter. the pixie chick extraordinaire, like hottie. Uh, everyone loved her. The girls loved her and identified her. The art chicks all loved her. They were they were over the moon about her they thought brad pitt was hot and sexy and loved that but they liked the movie because of helena bottom carter mm. of course she was like my ideal chick back then so i was way into that the movie ended with a pixie song it ended yeah. with where is my mind now the 90s had happened the grunge movement had happened but like the pixies never really made it to like no one knew who the pixies were except for like our crew Right. Mm -hmm. Like you could go to anybody in high school and bring up Pearl Jam and Nirvana and they knew who they were. Anybody, anywhere, parents, adults, everyone. They were all over MTV. But the Pixies were kind of like you had to be like one level like hipper than that to know who the Pixies were. So to have this movie come out with uh, Helena Bonham Carter and then the Pixies at the end, my whole like little sub group of like arty artsy friends were like over the moon about this movie. This was like our anthem because of that stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not to mention, you know, Brad Pitt, the way he dressed in that movie, like the art hose went crazy for that too. Sure. <laughs> well, like, like the th thrift store chic uh, in a way is almost. It's exactly sort of, what it was. It's exactly let's not forget was. that this comes out in 1999 and the final scene, they're holding hands and a couple of towers fall. Yeah. yeah, I know. <laughs> I know that oof. that is a whole different conversation. So so this movie really resonated with like literally everybody. And then mm. also like it's got the tough guy stuff. Right. But like for a more intellectually minded guy like I clearly am, I, I, I was the nerd on Friday nights on Friday nights. I went to a party school. Uh, mm. I transferred out of the art school because I was a terrible student to a university and I went to a major party school mm. and I would be in the library on Friday nights like <laughs> reading you know fiction literature excuse me uh non philosophy so when i watch this movie and there's the whole like critique of capitalism in the beginning that like set me off like there was no other movie doing it, that 
It's it's very it's an unusual mix of extremely high and very low. There yeah, are ideas in that it's movie. Testosterone fueled fueled violence mixed with like philosophy. It's mm-hmm. like mainstream. Like football bros can get into it. Uh, at the at the same time, like my like dorky artsy crew who was like huge. David Lynch was like, I, I was kind of lukewarm on David Lynch, but he was the guy that everyone loved from my scene. <laughs> And this movie was like on par, mm. which is saying a lot. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. different vibe, totally uh, different vibe, yeah. totally different vibe. Yeah. But, but the the art artsy people, the intellectual crowd, uh, was able to find something here to to really. I mean, this movie like changed America. What year is it now? It's 2023. Oh God, take yeah. me back to 1999. <laughs> take me back. Take yeah. me back. <laughs> I had a good time in the 90s. Take me back. Oh man, we're getting old, <laughs> dude. I'm you want to like, take that? Yeah, yeah. I'm on like full blown 90s overload because uh, Bap did that show on Mulholland Drive, and it just I kind of wrote that movie off from that like back great. then because I saw that this movie, Fight Club, Mulholland Drive, American Beauty, Dogma. American um, not, Psycho or American American Beauty. Psycho American, and American Beauty. Yeah. They American all Beauty. came out in this little window. Mm, ni- right. 1999 was one of, if you look back at what was released, especially for people our age, it was an incredible It was amazing. Year. It yeah. was kind of the swan song. I look at it yeah. now as the swan song. Yeah. Yeah. It sort of starts with like Truman Show, which was late 98, goes through 1999, all these incredible movies. I actually wrote them down. Office Good. Space, American Beauty, Girl Interrupted, Virgin Suicide, Eyes Wide Shut, Magnolia. Whoa. Couple that aren't quite as good, but still quite good, really, in hindsight. Sixth Sense, Existence, 13th Floor, Galaxy Quest, Being John Malkovich, Blair yeah. Witch Project, and then it kind of into American Psycho in 2000, right? Dude, it's fascinating. You named yeah. a few. Like, like I don't particularly love Dogma, but at yeah. the time, being John Malkovich, Dogma, and Fight Club, and uh, and then Mulholland Drive, like everyone was constantly talking about those movies, like constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you named a whole bunch of other stuff. Magnolia yeah. was mm-hmm. like the sleeper classic. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was a, yeah. it was what a time to be alive. So. What? what? Ah, <laughs> the 90s. And to be young. Ah, to be young. <laughs> All right, guys, yeah. coffee yep. break time. When we come back. I'm going to read the thread that I mentioned earlier. And then we're going to use that as a way we're going to go through the film. Uh, maybe not with its fine tooth comb, but I'd like to do so to kind of do a close reading. Close yeah. enough. Close enough it. reading. Yeah. Sounds great. All right. So uh, we'll be right back. Rock and roll.
All right, we're back for part two of our Fight Club discussion. We talked about the cultural context and the cultural legacy of the film and the the battle that's going on in the mainstream over the uh, the interpretation of this movie. So now I would like us to give our interpretation of the movie, and I'm going to frame it by reading the thread I mentioned, this woke thread. And just so you know, uh, I looked into this to see if this was just a one-off thing by some random guy on Twitter, or if this is like a real uh, thread of interpretation that's like taking hold and taking root in our culture. And I determined that it absolutely is. And that, Hmm. that the mainstream was already trying to, as I said, you know, I said all this in part one, but the mainstream was already trying to retcon and reappropriate this movie, but it looks like the wokesters, like the normal people who really embody this, you know, garbage philosophy, that they have their own read of this movie. And I've seen a lot of tweets about this uh, where they they sort of they sort of like internalize woke ideology and they see the world through this crazy distorted lens. And it looks to me like everything is a is a is a nail for their, you know, woke hammer. So this thread got two hundred and twenty thousand likes within 24 hours. I don't know where it's at now. Mm. And it got retweeted 33 34,000 times. So, oh. uh that's 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 the good thing about social media, the power of social media. It shows you where people are at. 34,000 people thought this was good enough to share and 220,000 people thought it was good enough to like. Yeah, that's a lot. And it I did think not, it did not get ratioed. No, it didn't get ratioed. Yeah. And if, you know, um, the two, 220, 220K likes probably is a tiny fraction of the number of people who actually would agree or at least passively be okay with mm-hmm. what I'm about to read now. When people call you a snowflake, just remember there's quoting Fight Club, a satire written by a gay man about how male fragility causes men to destroy themselves, resent society, and become radicalized. And that Tyler Durden isn't the hero, but a personification of the main character's mental illness, and that his snowflake speech is a dig at how fascists use dehumanizing language to breed loyalty from insecure people. So basically, people who say snowflake, in quotes, as an insult are quoting a domestic terrorist who blows up skyscrapers because he's insecure about how bad he is in bed. <laughs> this was written by a man, okay? Possibly a gay the, the, man, I don't know. The layers of irony and they talk about, I can't remember, but they talk about like machinery in the sky. Like philosophical ideas, ideology. Yeah, ideology. Just you can feel in every single Mm. syllable of that. You can just feel the machinery in the sky, the ideological gears turning, every moment twisted and contorted into a seven uh, seven moves of chess. Mm -hmm. The thing can never be the thing. Right. That is very well yeah, said, yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. that is what they do for everything. I once someone once explained this to me that these are like conceptual tools, and that reality is like a workshop, and that you take mm-hmm. these conceptual tools and you sort of like 
rebuild reality to fit this concept that you have. And these terms and these ideas are the tools that you use to like physically change reality so that it looks like uh, what you want it to look like. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's yeah, they, they live. They call I it mean, theory. it's just, it's they live. It's, it's the fucking glasses from they live. The woke <clears throat> glasses. That's yeah. Just, you don't have to go any farther than that. Yeah, so guys. All right. So, guys. Um, when people call you a snowflake, just remember a satire written by a gay man about how male fragility causes men to destroy themselves, resent society, and become radi- radicalized. He's a personification of the main character's mental illness, and Snowflake is a dig at how fascists use dehumanizing language to breed loyalty from insecure people. Do you guys think that, that the movie is about that? Do you guys agree? I would say I vastly disagree with it where there is perhaps a sort of kernel of truth and this has always been the the aspect of the film that I didn't quite I never quite settled on ever was did Project Mayhem go too far it's a good question let's talk about that yeah and yeah and sorry and my point on that is if Project Mayhem did go too far, there is some little bit of truth. Not in the, um, not in the, the, maybe in the cult leader, the cult aspect or something. It, that that argument is true. The gay stuff to me, I think, forget all that crap. But 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 there, if Project Mayhem did go too far, there is something about this like preying on people with cult like stuff i think there might be a kernel of truth to that okay part. we need to talk about that and i wrote down mm. did project mayhem go too far let's mm. but let's circle back because i want kevin uh, to respond to that thread how could it be you can do this with almost anything mm-hmm. with with quote-unquote theory you can read and deconstruct and reinterpret and add layers of irony and snark uh, almost to anything that's artistic because by its very nature art tends not to be polemical Mm -hmm. Art that gets into the mainstream at this level is, again, it's not a Rorschach blot, but there's room for you to read and interpret. So the the spirit of that tweet is not in good faith. Uh, and of course, it's all purely political, right? Because wasn't it? It was Trump and Trumpers were using, you know, Snowflake as a kind of. Yeah. But I don't, I don't read the the use of that in the film as as anything other than earnest coming from Tyler Durden. Right. Uh, it's not. It's not meant ironically. It is. It seems to almost be. If it's. If it's a polemic. I mean, things can have some. You know, polemical content. It just seems like he's really. He he's really almost preaching to to young men. Another thing that's lost in all of this is the uh the consequences of fatherlessness. Yeah, that's on men in the theme. culture. A huge right. theme and in they, that movie. They just leave that out because yep. isn't that convenient to yep. somebody who had like a mixed experience without having a, but my father died when I was very young. That really resonates with me. And I don't see how you can square that motif, that earnest motif where they give entire scenes to that concept. If our fathers abandoned us and our fathers were our models yeah. for God, what does that tell you about God? Yeah. Yeah. That to and, me, and Trump's, Kevin also, yeah, so mm. that's this is a beautiful point. I'm glad you bring it up because there's another twist on that same theme in the film that I think probably the people who are trying to gay code the movie take use make use of, which is when uh, Tyler Durden says something. I don't think another woman is what we need, 
And what he's saying uh, is, is is more along the lines of what we needed was fathers or what we needed was that father energy, you know, whether it's a specific man who's a father or or a god or whatever. But I think the the people who want to gay code it can very easily turn. Well, that means we should, you know, <laughs> we should, you know, obviously. Um, uh, yeah, none of that messaging, at least in the way it's presented in the film, to me no. is is layered with irony or. I mean, he's again, uh, Tyler is this aspirational. It might be his mental illness, but it's his aspirational. It's the side that he's repressed and which is leading him to live this miserable yeah. Ikea meatball life you that know, he that, hates. That reminds me, another thing that has changed drastically in our society since this movie came out is that the fetishization of mental illness wasn't a thing back then. So now to 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 talk about a mental illness it's like uh it's this like badge of you know uh, not just like courage right so they're saying like I have this mental illness and you know I'm a warrior every day because I can go out and face the world despite my mental illness so they they wear it like that Mm-hmm. Uh, they also try to use it as a way to sort of like uh, compartmentalize normal human desires or normal human functionality. Right. So instead of it being normal for Edward Norton to feel like stifled by his lifestyle, it's not normal. It's abnormal for him to feel that way. And how do we know it's abnormal? Because he's got a mental illness, which is, you know, whatever you want to call it. I guess it would be schizophrenia or multiple personality disorder. Yeah. Uh, and he manifests Tyler Durden. So in the woke reading of it with the way mental illness is normalized and fetishized in our society today, which is a feminine thing to do, by the way, it's women that do that. Uh, And the fact that it's a man who made this tweet is just so perfect of our (laughs) emblematic of our symptom uh, of our, of our cultural illness, the cultural malaise we're suffering through. But uh, of course to them, it's not uh, he's living an unfulfilling life in which he's being uh, crushed under the weight of, you know, office drudgery and capitalism and blah, 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 blah. No, he has a mental illness and therefore like, <laughs> right. you know, right. yeah, well, of course, though, I mean, as, it just completely yeah. misreads the film. Yeah, as though to, for him to have a mental illness somehow obviates the fat, the cultural critique that's in the film, right? It's sort of like, well, yeah, there's nothing really wrong with society. He's just mentally ill rather than you know, maybe I, society has I, made him mentally ill. I it's... think about this all the time. Like, how are you? Yeah, society. If, right. you, yeah. if you're well adjusted to this society, right? like in 1999, yeah. much less after the past couple of years, are you the well, are, are you the sane one? I mean, this is a, a, a juvenile insight, but right. consistent, almost a cliche now. But uh, yeah, I don't know that I want to be well adjusted to uh, my COVID, my pandemic, ad right. infinitum, take right. your shots, work. I, I don't want to be well adjusted to that, yeah. to that world. Yeah. In a way, it is heroic that he that he would become so extreme, which is, of course, very frightening. That is very, very scary. And so well, you've got to turn it into a satire. I, I think that um, I don't I don't try to do Freudian reads. Very often, um, I do have a couple novels, books that I think are very Freudian, um, so it applies to that. But I, I'm not someone who uh, goes around and applies the Freudian psychoanalytic uh, psychological critique to everything. You can do that. It's very simple. It's a very midwit Reddit tier thing to do. Say, oh, this character represents a projection of the psyche, blah, 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 blah. 
But this is a very Freudian movie. I mean, it's just yeah. it's just overt. Yeah, yeah, I don't think you need to give an apologia for applying Freudian theory to this film or this book because it's right there in your it's face. It's right there. I mean, the whole father yeah. thing, the whole dysfunctional mm-hmm. sexuality, uh lack of a father figure is Freudian. The the uh repression of male instincts and desires, the return of the repressed for it to you know, Freud says it comes roaring back. I mean, the whole thing is just laid out for you. Mm-hmm. Uh but I think that and 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 Palinuk, by the way, dismisses the Freudian read. He basically dismisses every read in that afterwards. He yeah. dismisses the gay read as well. He should. Yeah. He should. Yeah. He does. Yeah. yeah as any it's good just, writer, it's the boss writer move. Should. Plus, it's a yeah. trickster. It's a trickstery book. Like it plays with the trickstery element. So he can't let you pin it down. That would be that would be a, a huge mistake. I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. But I think. <clears throat> The ultimate read of this film is not Freudian. Uh, I I wrote about it on my blog because I just don't think you can get away from it. And the woke are doing some twisted sort of Freudian read. Basically, they're doing Freud, which is bad enough, right? Freud is bad enough, but they're laundering Freud through feminism and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, queer analysis, which just turns it into this like mutant beast. Uh, but my, <laughs> my assertion of this film, and this is now we're going to get at the question of, uh, did Project Mayhem go too far? I think the ultimate read of this film is Nietzschean and, and people mm-hmm. that's in, that's out there. People have said that. I've never read a, uh, a, 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 a specific delineated, you know, explanation of this through Nietzsche. But Tyler Durden is the Ubermensch because in Zarathustra, uh, Zarathustra is, in thus book Zarathustra, Zarathustra is explaining to you the attributes of the Ubermensch, what he does, how he handles himself, how he acts in certain situations, what he, uh, rejects from normal civilization. Um, that, Tyler Durden is that, all those things. He just is all those things. And the whole last men, you know, uh, 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 Nietzsche likens the last men to like, you know, cows standing out to pasture, blinking stupidly, uh, smiling in their happiness. That's his thing that they're like, I mean, you, you, you can't read Zarathustra without sort of applying terminology or context to it because it's, it's a pretty, uh, he doesn't spell everything out for you. But the way I interpret the last men, you know, smiling in their happiness, blinking stupidly in the pasture is that whatever, modernity hands them they stupidly lap it up mm-hmm. like like slop in a pigsty so for this context that would be the ikea life the last men enjoy the cubicle office ikea lifestyle where everything is itemized and everything is turned into a product yeah. Yeah. so so edward norton is the last man and tyler right. durden is the ubermensch yeah. Yeah. And that's that's Tyler Durden. Remember when when uh, in the film, Edward Ed Norton is talking to that police officer about his blown up, blown up apartment and Tyler Durden sort of in the background is saying, tell him that the man who blew up my possessions has liberated me. You know, <laughs> It's sort of like that. Right. It's uh, and uh, yeah. Yeah. It's it, And OK, if you're smiling placidly in the pasture and you're happy with your life, what happens when you get punched in the face? Exactly. Yeah, how does that make you react? Does it stir anything in you? And if it does, maybe you still have something. Maybe you still are. You're still alive in there somehow. Yeah, which is why the violence is in the film. Which is why Mm -hmm. Tyler Durden employs the violence. He's trying to like snap you out of it. 
Mm-hmm. We haven't even yet. And of course, this is what all of this uh, talk, this, this queer reading stuff serves to obfuscate, uh, is the class reading of it. It's extraordinarily class conscious film. Okay, let's hear that. I want to hear that. I didn't. I didn't go there at all. I want. I want to hear. Well, that. yeah, no, no. But the. I mean, the the. It's the all of the workers, all of the working class guys, the cops, right. uh, the the waiters. We, we protect anybody... you while you sleep. Right. Yep. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's kind of about a proletariat uprising. Uh, in a in a in a sense. Yeah, you're and, right. That uh, is that is there. And anybody who uh, has worked a service job. Uh, immediately grocks it and goes, yeah, I get that. Fuck these people. Well, I think what he's saying, I think what he's saying is they're not the last men, whereas right. the Edward Norton types are the last men. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Yeah, Edward Norton is this kind of PMC white, white collar climber, e- right. kind of evil works an evil, objectively evil job that should not exist. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. in no uncertain terms, right? You can't defend. He picked no. that in the purpose. in the afterward. He talks about how uh, uh, like a waiter would come up to him, uh, came up to him at one point and uh, said that that stuff about the the because um, he's making the case in the afterward that nothing he wrote about he invented. It's already existed. He's mm-hmm. just a guy. I uh, talked about how yeah, that's a thing we do in the sir you know the food service industry. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. You know, I, and I work for I work for a place where we serve a lot of celebrities and a lot of famous people and. And and Paladin said, "Well, can you give me a name?" And the guy was like, "No, I really shouldn't." Margaret Thatcher has eaten my cum five times. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, imagine me. What do you say to that? Oh, <sighs> shit. Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, and that, and of course, it, rather than talking about that reading, which again makes makes people very would make people very uncomfortable, we talk about the homoerotic tension. Right. Right. Return. You're not, well, you can't talk about, yeah. you can't talk about class. Mm, it it, it is actually one of the most class conscious films, uh, oh. to, to, you know, American films to achieve that level of success. It's just Americans are class blind because it's, it's just not, it's not how we're, we're, we're trained to think. It's even played down a little bit in the, in the film. It's almost, it's almost treated as kind of a humor. It's a humorous thread in the movie. Yeah. Uh, but it's dead. It's deadly serious. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Cause I have a sort of a theory that every time we do try it, we do almost become class conscious. It gets culturally engineered out of us. Like, 100%. like the, whatever you think of Occupy Wall Street, that was a moment where we almost became class conscious yeah, yeah, and yeah. that got immediately subjugated and, and, you know, all, yeah. So that happens all the time. So it wouldn't surprise me that that's also happening with a film like Fight Club. Yeah, yep. I mean the Trump, the Trump thing. This is all about. This is all about the Trump thing because you know mm-hmm. the Trump phenomena. Um, that that was to an extent a, a class phenomenon as well because mm-hmm. the people, the Trump supporters. You know, at least your stereotypical Trump supporter is the uh, is the type of person in this movie that joins Fight Club. You know, I mean the people I knew in real life who joined Fight Club were like bartenders. Uh, people that were in the Navy, people that were in, in, in the military. And was, was Chuck Palahniuk in the military? I hmm. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think he was think so. either. I don't think he was yeah. either. But I asked that, though, because the Snowflake speech he gives, Tyler Durden gives, it's like a drill instructor, isn't it? It's like a drill instructor trying to motivate his troops, um, and you're not mm-hmm. special. And it's this uh, really 
that snowflake speech flies in the face of everything the wokes believe about themselves, doesn't it? It's like mm. we are special and what we think and believe and feel really does matter. It matters so much that the entire civilization has to stop and yeah. cater to us. Yeah, but they're but it's all kind of mixed up, isn't it? Because they're at the same time they lean toward collectivism. Right. So it's this desire for this arch individualism married to this benign longhouse collectivism. It's 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 a totally incoherent ideology, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the reasons they can just shape and mold it uh, any which way they want. Because and in which, the end, it's all about power. Yeah, which is yeah. why they can use any film to make any point that they want to, right? Yeah, they don't, yeah. You're not, yeah, you're not coherent to, to begin with, right? So they have to yeah. go after this one. Um, yeah, yeah. No, this is a this is a dangerous one. I mean, because I feel like they're. Um, Everybody's fine with men, not fine, but like sort of tolerant of men having like crappy or halfway decently made, but just like sort of, uh, I don't want to say meaningless, but just like action movie, shoot 'em up, hyper masculine movies. We're kind of okay with that. But as soon as it starts to have like some thematic resonance with what's going on, yeah. people start getting all aggravated. Right. It's like, oh, well, blah, blah, blah. like even that Chris Pratt Navy SEAL show that came out a little while ago. I don't know if you guys saw it. It was pretty good for what it was, but it, people got all up in arms about it. And I think it was because it actually pointed to deep corruption in the military industrial complex. Well, and, it's probably and so, part of it. But right. Right. And and also because it was hyper masculine. Yeah, but, that's that's what I was right, going to say. Yeah. Right. But if if it hadn't had a point, if it had just been dudes beating each other up, I think. The culture would have just been like, ah, eh, that's fine, whatever. It's stupid. It's fine. I, I as soon as it's like trying to smuggle in a a point beyond that, you got to shut that shit down. Especially, yeah, especially if the point <laughs> isn't expressly left wing. Like, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, uh, well, Brad posed the question, but we'll let Kevin answer it first. Does Project Mayhem oh, go too far? I mean, this is the question. This is the question for the whole story. Does Project Mayhem go too far, and why? Does uh, Edward Norton kill Tyler Durden, and which he, I think he was trying mm. to kill himself, really. I think it even says it in the book that he was trying to kill himself, and mm. he wasn't trying to just excise Tyler Durden from his brain. Uh, correct me if I get that wrong. Um, oh, my understanding, and I haven't reread the book in advance of this. My understanding in the film, and I could be wrong, was that basically – for Edward Norton, it was a failed suicide attempt. Yeah, but because a... Tyler Durden was the perfect version of him, it was a successful suicide attempt. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So Kev, too far? And why did Edward uh-huh. Norton try to shut it down? Well, and what okay, so let's talk about what Project Mayhem, what their goal was. It it was very comparable. So okay. My reading of it is that all the run up stuff is training. And yep. he's securing his perfect uh, foot soldiers to ex- execute, uh, let's call it the night of the long swipe, uh, like the credit card, <laughs> right? Like you swipe a credit card because he is trying to reset the credit debt, reset debt. He's trying to give everyone a debt jubilee. Uh, that That on its own is a very interesting idea. Uh, let's not forget that the day before... 9-11, uh, the, the Pentagon gave, Rumsfeld gave a report that trillions of dollars were, had gone missing, uh, from the Pentagon and only to have that part of the Pentagon 
destroyed. I mean, this is a common, consp- commonly known <laughs> conspiracy theory. One of the great coincidences so, of all time, actually. Uh, just a, such a, so, and, and ironically, the same thing that Project Mayhem was trying to do, but for the military industrial complex for the Pentagon. Uh, so did it, and this, this gets at that, your class, your class commentary. Yes, mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah, I mean, it, the the way that he gets all these people on board is that they all have – student debt hadn't really become a crisis quite yet, but it was just germinating. <laughs> uh, but yeah, all of those people are are living in debt. Marla – Marla's a, 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 like a tramp. Marla yeah. uh, sells jeans you know, for, that she steals. She's the – I mean, she's the definition of the lump and pearl. Uh, it, and that's one of the funny things about the film too, is that it's so, it's so, it's cast so amusingly, like these, these prole heroes, like, like Tyler Durden, uh, just these like absolute, absolute A-list bombshells. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, can you imagine if like, I've been on a Mike Lee binge, are you familiar with my, Mike Lee? Um, made the film Naked. It's a great British oh, yeah, You're always classic. pushing that movie. I still got to yeah. watch yeah. it. Oh, you got to watch Naked. Let me know what you think about it. But anyway, Criterion Collection has a bunch of his old stuff on BBC. And it's just funny to think how, like, what his version of Fight Club would look like. They would not look like Helena Bonham Carter and uh, and Brad Pitt. But I, to get to to get to the point, um, I you just have to ask yourself, like, are, would you be on board with a, a collective debt reset? And if so, then no, Project Mayhem did not go too far. And I think they make the point in the film that everybody's been warned. We run these buildings. We're the security guards. We're the, it's a kind of a power fantasy. I think most people have had some, you can sort of conceptualize this. Well, my God, what if, what if all the police turned one day and just decided to not to serve the masters of the banks and da da da? It's a common, almost kind of a right wing. It's, it's actually just a totalitarian fantasy on either side. If only, I mean, hell, the left, that's their whole thing. If only we could get the lump and prole on, you know, organized, then we could take the means of production and blah, blah, blah. But it's similar on the right. The right has this weird fantasy that like, oh, if only these, this mass of people wakes up then we could you know one day you know rule the world blah blah um but yeah they make a point that they're not killing anybody with this stuff they're just trying to reset the credit i mean it'd be an interesting question if you could push a button and like reset the financial system obliviate fiat currency uh and return at least or even maybe just the system stays intact but you return everybody to zero would that be a good or a bad thing? I don't know the answer to it, but as like an impulse, I think it's kind of uh, I think it's it's kind of uh, understandable. Yeah, two quick responses. First is that, and people people talk about this. Serious thinkers over the centuries, the last century, I should say, address this time and again. Uh, the 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 people that the communism that uh, and the socialism that Engels and Marx envisioned. Do not go for communism. They like their jobs. They like the life that capitalism affords them, even industrial capitalism. Mm-hmm. A lot of people now uh, will say like, oh, well, you know, back then Marx's critique was OK because industrial capitalism was such a nightmare. But uh, since then, it's things have gotten a lot better. So it's like no longer applies. But the the reality is, is that even back when industrial capitalism was like a, a lot harsher on the worker than it is now they still didn't go for communism communism required massive prolonged uh uh uninterrupted uh uh campaigning and and agitation to get people to come over and when it finally does go that way 
in like real communism, it's not the workers. It's 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 the criminals. It's out of work veterans. Uh, you know, if you if you read Spandrel's Bio Lenin essay, or if you read the always with honor, memoirs of General Wrangle. Yeah, Peter Wrangle's always with honor. Um, and, and other accounts of the of the Bolshevik Revolution as well. Uh, the people, it's not like the workers all threw down their, their wrenches, uh, and, and left the factories and, and started a revolution. It happened after years of agitation by criminals. Uh, Lenin opened, opened, I think he opened the prison and the insane asylum to, to get work, uh, uh, soldiers on his side. So the point here, and, and, and as well as out of work veterans, because the, the Eastern Front collapsed and he had all these soldiers who uh Lenin sort of like capitalized on to to start a revolution. Mm-hmm. Real communism as it plays out, it doesn't get like the middle class and the working class on its side. It gets the rejects, mm-hmm. it gets the outcasts. So okay. part of the reason why the left has to reappropriate Fight Club is because it shows you that like these people don't go for the 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 bullshit pussy foot bullshit on the left. They respond to this sort of thing and they like the things that capitalism affords them. It's, it's good for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's what you have to contend with here in this mm-hmm. book and just in life in general. Uh, Spangler's Hour of Decision. I keep dropping all these nerdy, nerdy books that I'm reading. He makes the exact same argument that it's not the workers that go for communism. The workers go for fascism. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's historically just a fact. Okay, number one. And then number two, the other thing you said um, – and then the other thing I wanted to say to what you're talking about, resetting the global financial, uh, you know, the debt jubilee. This is what I mean about it being Nietzsche and why this is ultimately a Nietzschean story because what's happening there is that there was uh, there was the, the blonde beasts in the past in Nietzsche's genealogy of morals who used their martial virtue to take control and establish society and they – Establish order and they put the they they put the seeds down to start civilization because they were strong men and they used violence to Hmm. to create and allow society to persist. Right. Then somewhere along the way, there's a slaver's vault and the priests take over Hmm. and they take over in our society through, you know, blue collar work debt. We subjugate virile men to the banking system. So this is a slave revolt. So then. Uh, Nietzsche's whole thing is like we have to invaluate values. We have to basically like turn slave morality on its head and reclaim the morality of the blonde beast. And this is the morality of Zarathustra. This is the mo- mm. morality of the Ubermensch. This is the morality of Tyler Durden. Mm. So Project Mayhem is overthrowing the the uh, the slave morality that the slave revolt implemented. And this is basically like a reclamation. Of, of a of an earlier type of man who was there the whole time who's always been there right mm-hmm. but they're relegated to the fringes of society and nietzsche calls them the subterraneans mm-hmm. in twilight of the idols he calls men who refuse to sort of sublimate or repress their violent urges he calls them the subterraneans of society because they're not allowed to like exist in liberal institutions because if they mm. acted like that in society, they would bring it down. It, they they right. would take over and everything would be crushed. So they have to be turned into criminals. They have to be turned into outcasts. So they have to be turned into subterraneans. So 
on the one yeah. level you have the Freudian read of this story in which like Tyler Durden is 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 Edward Norton's unconscious and he's like in the basement. But on another better, I think, higher level read of this story, uh, these violent men are the subterraneans that Nietzsche talks about who get relegated to the underground who are now uh, being led by the first Ubermensch who is Tyler Durden and they're Mm -hmm. like reasserting control. And my contention is that Edward Norton doesn't want that to happen because he just wants to have a normal mundane last man existence because he finally gets Marla. He finally overcomes his sexual neuroses Mm-hmm. realizes what's going on with Marla and wants to be with her. So he has to like get rid of that because he can't have a normal life, right. romantic life and ride off into the sunset with Marla. If fucking Tyler Durden and all his people right. bring society down and like subjugate it to the, the project mayhem. Yeah. You can't be at the head of a revolution and also just be in a nice married couple. Yeah. And live in the suburbs. And, you can't yeah, do both of yeah, those at the exactly. same time. Right. 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 No, that's I, I an interesting say, reading. Yeah. Hmm. Go ahead. I will say watching the film, you don't get the impression that after Project Mayhem has its night of the long swipe, uh, that uh, it's it's going to turn into a nice communal uh, world. There, yeah. I don't get any whiffs of, of socialism or. Uh, you, you, yeah. You have to yeah. remember too. remember Tyler Durden right before he disappears from Edward Norton and then Edward Norton has to go find him. Tyler Durden comes to him and this is right after they had the car wreck. Right. And Edward Norton's laying there. He's like coming in and out of consciousness. And Tyler Durden says something along the lines of in the world I see, you'll be tanning hides on the Long Island Expressway, right? You'll be hunting antelope in the Central Park or whatever, right? He's not looking for like some kind of return, some some kind of uh, variance on like an ordered society, but with with different people in power. He wants to return it to the primeval, vitalist, essential, like he wants to return it to like living in the intense present all the time, right? It's a it's you know some people would say that's like highly regressive or something um but reactionary that's yeah that's the vision that tyler durden has it's amazing it's It's amazing yeah and 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 to me there is an allure to that i i i'm not even sure that that i don't even know that that's possible or that the changes that would have to happen to get there would be cataclysmic and basically we'd all be dead anyway yeah but but there is there is the same part of me that liked to smash my head into things when I was a young man likes the idea that I have to, you know, hunt an antelope to provide you know, for my family. Right. Uh, You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> the original screenplay for Conan the Barbarian was written by Oliver Stone. Mm-hmm. And it was a futuristic movie where Conan the Barbarian is living in L.A., you know, hundreds of years in the future, post-apocalyptic. And he becomes this like king of wow. you know post-apocalyptic L.A. And it got rejected for John Milius's, which is good because that's like the best movie of all time. It's my favorite yeah. movie. But, but I like that. I do cool like to think about that, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like I like that version. It doesn't have to be Conan, but there should be that movie should exist. I think, and, and then also Twelve Monkeys, which is one of my favorite movies. Uh, I love Twelve Monkeys and Brad Pitt's and Brad Pitt in it. Um, Terry Gilliam, similar. Not quite the same, but similar in it's like a post-apocalyptic future world in which uh, the animals from the zoo break out and they like, you know, you see, you know, elephants and tigers and grizzly bears roaming through 
post-apocalyptic Philadelphia. Well, mm. I don't think that the Zoomers can really fully appreciate the the millenarian moment. The millennia was coming to an end. Like uh, thoughts of apocalypse were were in the air. It was mm-hmm. it was the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of those films are, of course, very apocalyptic. Fight Club. You assume if they accomplish their goal, things are going to yeah. get real apocalyptic. That's another thing. Uh, well, finish yeah. it up. Yeah. But yeah. No, and then of course, point. Twelve Monkeys, which, yeah, and Twelve Monkeys. We watched that during the pandemic. That was a trip. Must watch. Yeah, must watch. <laughs> must watch. Maybe we yeah. can do an episode on that movie. I love that movie. Mm, uh, that's great movie. It's kind of like maybe we uh, do. One, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, one flew over the cuckoo's nest in in, in the future or something. Um, Brad Pitt's awesome in that movie. One, probably he really my favorite. Is. This movie, Fight Club, Twelve Monkeys, and Snatch. Those are the three Brad Pitt movies for me. Yeah. Yo, uh, Killing Them Softly. Yeah, I haven't seen it. All... Oh. oh, okay. <laughs> Please watch. You got to watch yeah, Naked. Watch should. Killing Them Softly. Killing, Killing Them Sof- Softly is James Gandolfini's last uh, film. Okay, and it's yeah. I'll, I'm not going to say anymore, but I, it's probably my favorite Brad Pitt. Interesting. Okay. All right, I'll, and it's I'll the same to... guy. It's the same guy who directed Blonde. And oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, a lot of respect for that guy. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I love Brad that you brought up that that quote and that scene uh, after I said what I said about the Nietzsche thing because that's exactly mm-hmm. right. Now, mm-hmm. um, Kevin, you brought up something I wanted to to touch on that I would have lost. Um, Project Mayhem go, it goes off. It it happens. Project Mayhem is a success. Uh, Edward Norton does not stop it. And it's more explicit in the book than the movie. Again, we're talking about the movie, but you can get, it's there in the movie. I mean, the the buildings come down, all those people that were in project, he only shoots himself in the face. He doesn't stop any of the other people. So you can assume that it goes on. And it says right in the book, you know, that uh, one of the guys finds him after he gets put in an insane asylum and tells him, you know, in coded language, like, Hey, it's happening. We're 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 winning. It's Project Mayhem is a success, and that's like the end mm. of the movie, right? Yeah. And so book, yeah. Oof, mm-hmm. yeah. So is that? Yeah. Then the question: <laughs> Do you want that as a viewer, as a reader, as a you know? Do you want that? Do you want Project Mayhem to have won? That feels to me like that's always been the tension for me in that film because there are certainly mm-hmm. parts of it that I was cheering on. In theory, I'm in favor of a debt. You know, a debt collapse of some kind like it does make sense we're being preyed upon by these corporations and complicated financial instruments and all of these things so yeah wipe that out there is that's there's an appeal to that um smash oh, man i hope you're i hope you got bullets man i hope you're stuck <laughs> up because that would get gnarly yeah that oh yeah that's gnarly. right right it's easy yeah, to say yeah, you yeah. want that to happen right but hold yeah, on until the know, roving let's... mob comes to your house because they've heard they heard online that you have a meat freezer Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, in theory, smashing up a Starbucks, I mean, I'm not going to do it, but okay. Like, I get your point. Um, well, but- it, here's something I had never thought of before. And Brad, sorry yeah, to talk ahead. over you. I will let you pick yeah. it up. But uh, like, what if that were to happen and it was just a financial reset, but the internet continued working? <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyway yeah, yeah brad you were you were on it so. well i now i was just saying like you take all of these individual individual things and they do have a certain appeal to them right like uh you know i uh, we're trying to think of the other things they do in project mayhem 
Uh, now they get birds to crap on a bunch of BMWs. That one seems kind of juvenile in a certain way. But um, it's cool that you brought up Discordia, the Discordian Society, because that is what this is. They they were mm-hmm. the same thing, the, the kind of bizarre, absurd, meaningless disruptions of day-to-day life. Yeah, they weren't necessarily they, – they, yeah, the individual things weren't necessarily – like you smash up a Starbucks, you're not destroying Starbucks as a company, but maybe right. you're making the people who walk by it think slightly differently. Now, in light of all the riots and stuff in 2020, that stuff seems like – Well, even the, the WTO like the protests, wind. they were yeah. – the imagery from the WTO protests in Seattle, which was the same year as this movie, I think it was after mm. – um, I have to mm. check that, but I'm almost positive it was after this movie came out. Some of the main images that made it to the mainstream were people smashing up Starbucks. Right. This movie is just like the the pro the blueprint for the next twenty years. Like, yeah, 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 for sure, for real. And that that's the thing. And so you actually see some Whoa. of the things that Project Mayhem carried out happening under maybe different political or ideological conditions. But did you was it good that they happened? Right. So go ahead, go Fight ahead. Club came out on November 11th of 1999, and yep. then uh, the WTO protests happened on November 30th, yep. 1999. <laughs> yep, that's right. <laughs> Woo! Wow. Yeah, exactly. What a and time then, to be alive. And then wow. 9-11 with the falling towers, it's just too... Yeah. What happened to all the WTO protesters? They turned into Trump supporters. Me. Did, did they? Okay. Yes, all right. I okay. was a WTO protester. I mean, I wasn't okay. there. I wasn't yeah. there, but I was sympathetic. Mm. And now I'm a Trump supporter, or I was. For mm, interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Uh, okay. No, I always wondered, like, no, what I happens know. to all the G8 protests and all yeah. those sort of yeah. those sort of anarchists before they uh, all became like. I mean, the real answer to that is way more complicated. They, sure. They, they, yeah. They, turned, right, they got. Right. They got. They all channeled into Occupy and Bernie. Then they got yep. sold out by the Democrats, and a huge majority of them got appropriated by the Democrats and became. Nah, they're just fucking. They're all just Democrats at the end of the day. But at the bottom of the funnel, they just they'll they'll just yeah. hold their nose and vote for mm-hmm. Biden every well, time. Well, no, but then there's the post left. It was a very mm-hmm. small, more or less irrelevant contingent of people who are holding <laughs> to their ideals. But then there's mm-hmm. people like me who kind of. Uh, I, I mean, I was going pretty much once Occupy Wall Street was over, I was done. I mean, mm-hmm. I I then supported Bernie, but I, I I was already really done. But then when they stabbed Bernie in the back, it was like Democrats. the 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 GOP became like a joke to me, and the Democrats became like the the dangerous enemy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Woo! <laughs> get, get old, boys. It's and then yeah, are, you know, over yeah. time, Trump. Mm-hmm. Proved, proved that he's the only one who had – I don't want to turn this into a yeah. pro-Trump Fight Club episode, mm. but yeah. he's the only one who had these people's interests in mind. I mean the people mm. in Project Mayhem would definitely have all been Trump supporters, and everyone mm. knows it. That's why the left is trying to like mm. – you know, they, they couldn't make the movie go away, so they're trying to reappropriate it. And um, right. you have to read the essays on my blog. I've probably written 10,000 words about that. Oh, they're very good. Yeah, I mean, Thank people you. who are listening to this probably have already read it. But yeah, let me just throw in. I, I was rereading. I had read them as they came out, and then I re- reread them over the last day or so in preparation for this. And they're very good, man. It really, really got me thinking excited to have this conversation. You know what's crazy? Like, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, uh, uh, cosine. I was looking at – I'm looking at Fight Club right now, and on Google – and it has a cast and it has Brad Pitt as the narrator. That's not right. Interesting. No, Brad Pitt, it's Edward Norton who's the narrator. Yeah. Brad yeah, Pitt yeah. is Tyler Durden. So yeah. 
maybe it's the maybe, maybe the, the algorithm's trying to tell us something. Who yeah. knows? Uh, yeah. All right, look, let's. Uh, we're winding down here. Um, mm-hmm. I want. I got one last thing I'm going to bring up. Before I do, I want you guys to get any thoughts uh, out. You know, any last thoughts or anything you want to say that you didn't say? Because mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of change tack for the last minute. Yeah. Oh, okay. Go ahead. No, I want you to finish anything unresolved comments about Fight Club. One thing I, and this is sort of more a personal note rather than kind of getting into the societal collective stuff, but I think this was actually important culturally. One thing that Fight Club did, and this was an extension of the grunge Gen X stuff, right, was there there was an aspect of making uh, anti-consumerism a less materialistic mindset cool. Like, you mm-hmm. could come out of that and it could be cool in your mind to not give a shit about brand names or not care about having a nice car or a nice a nice house or anything like that. There is almost no messaging like that in popular culture at all now. Ooh, yeah. At all. There's nothing, right? Well, we it's even worse. We've become the brands. Right. We right. are the content now. Our identity. Mhm. Mhm. Yep. Yeah, and right. yeah, I mean, I've experienced that transformation in the last few years where yeah. it's, yeah, you sort of do become like a brand-like identity, right? But but I was trying to think, like, since then, in the last five or ten years, and I'm not that in tune with, like, mainstream culture in terms of, like, the films and t- television shows, um, but, like, it doesn't feel like that's a message you really see anywhere. Uh, not at all. It was very of the time. It was a very mm-hmm. late 90s thing. I mean, the whole thing in the beginning about... uh I can't remember what he he says, like the planets in the sky or maybe the the months of the year are named after different products. What what was that part? Oh, the Starbucks galaxy. And yeah, Yeah, right. Yeah, Yeah. that's I mean, that's straight out of Infinite Jest. That's yeah. Mm. um, But but that's in Palinuk's book. And, you know, he wrote the book in like 95, 96. He wrote it when Infinite Jest came out. So it's possible he didn't even know that was in Infinite Jest. Right. No, uh, I think when that did, was just uh, vibe. that's a Gen when X did Ameri- Yeah, that was a Gen it's X. A Gen vibe. X vibe. Yeah, when did, exactly. when did uh, American Psycho come out? The book? Well, that that was yeah. the last talking point I was going to bring up. Mm. Oh, okay. All right. Well, let me get my last thought about uh, Fight yeah, Club. Yeah, yeah. Do that I'll first. Just say, and then we're going to end on American Psycho. It's a great movie. It holds up really, really well. The only sour note for me is when he uh, when he shouts, run, Forrest, run. At the, uh, yeah. that's always stood out to me as like, I have a feeling it was Brad Pitt insisting. Uh, but I, I could be wrong. I don't, Wait, I don't remember when he does that. What, what part does he do? That? Uh, it's after they, uh, they hold up Raymond. Uh, oh, yes. Castle. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That to me always stood out as like the one sour note in the entire film and that, yeah. but whatever. Um, the film, the film is great. Uh, the, like the special effects are amazing. It's like meta without being up its own ass. And I just read, this is just the final thing I'll say, that the final scene of the demolition of the credit card office buildings was designed by a guy named Richard Bailey. Bailey worked on the scene for over 14 months. Really? <laughs> well, this is 1999. How do you, yeah. How, yeah. how do you computer generate yeah. that? And it even to like kind of look kind of. Mm-hmm. Fake. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, that would that would be a weekend render now. If, oh, not it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're studio right. That made Transformers or whatever. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Mm-hmm. You know what's uh-huh. funny? I should have said this in the beginning, but um, when I was single, I had this like literal one room hole in the wall apartment, and uh, it was a couch that folded out to a bed with a big 
TV with huge speakers and like a Blu-ray DVD player and a CD player because this was like still like 20, I don't know, that technology was still being used. Uh, and I had like Fight Club, I think Wolf of Wall Street and like the Departed DVDs. And those are like the only ones <laughs> I owned. And I remember a girl, I had a girl over and she like looks at the place and she like looks at the movies and she's like, this is the most single guy apartment I've ever been in my entire <laughs> life. And then when I met my wife, she starts making fun of me like, oh, let me guess, Fight Club's your favorite movie. I'm like, oh, how the fuck did you know that? And she's like, oh, every every guy loves Fight Club. Every guy loves Fight Club. And she said something like, you know, guys, uh, they have girls over to watch a movie and then they try to get in their pants. And I'm like, haha, whatever, right? And I blew it yeah. off. And then like – a couple days, weeks, whatever later, she said something like, are you going to invite me over to watch Fight Club or what? And I like look at her for a while and the gears start turning and I'm like, oh, oh. this girl likes me. So like, <laughs> I had her over and she's like, I knew it. Look, Fight Club is sitting right there on the desk. <laughs> of course it is. So anyway, anyway, American Psycho, let's let's take this episode out on that because I just watched it. And I have a lot to say about it, but the one thing I'll, I'll throw into this conversation is that movie written by a woman who – now, the director – I don't know if the director is a lesbian, but it was co-written by her and someone else. And the mm. other person is definitely a lesbian. Oh. For sure. So at least half the, a hand in the movie was was by a lesbian. Well, so. and Bre Brett Easton Ellis is, is a homosexual. Guy. Right, right, right. Yeah. right. But, but – Well, that's news to me, fellas. What no, I wanted to kidding. say was – Just kidding. <laughs> American Psycho is the critique of that type of hetero white man that mm. everyone is trying to say Fight Club is. I mean, mm. American Psycho is a great, awesome, love the movie, laugh my mm -hmm. ass off, fucking loved it. And I like the way people reappropriate Patrick Bateman as like the hero. But that movie is clearly trying to lampoon and satirize. I mean, American Psycho is the satire of that way of life and that yeah. type of man that the left is trying to say Fight Club is. I think you nailed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Absolutely. And they probably have to graft it onto Fight Club because of all the things we've talked about just here today. Yeah. The, the Nietzschean uh, motifs uh, and then the class structure american psycho it's safe because this guy is clearly an upper class douchebag yeah, right. so exactly. there's no working class narrative um that's that muddies the the water it's a great film i i think american psycho is like was an instant classic but was like a sleeper classic i don't think yeah. people quite appreciated how no, great back that then it wasn't one of the movies like up in the mix nope. it is it, a great film and it is a sat i mean it is a satire right it, it's it's a it's a trenchant satire of that whole world, that whole Wall Street world, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of put those funnily enough. I actually put these, those American Psycho, um, Fight Club and Office Space to me mm. are like this constellation of films that are all sort of like <laughs> hitting similar, a similar yeah. kind of thing from very different angles. But, but, um, there's some consistencies in them, right? Like, oh, dude, Fight Club uh, is like the other side of the coin that, mm -hmm. that, that office space is for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. American if, Psycho is, well, go on, Brad. Well, I was just going to say, well, you know, the main character in Office Space, instead of they come up with some some um, technological scam of the company, he and his buddies and his his sort of redneck neighbor, they just start a fight club 
instead of doing that and you right. have the movie Fight Club. That's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. And there's even that scam in there, too. Right. Ned Norton pulls off this scam to get to get funding by beating himself up. Oh, like, yeah. Right. There's they're they're very. They're, no, what, what, what was it in Office Space, though? In Office Space, they set up Michael. Bolton it was like character. a microtransaction. They just yeah, got like so, a tiny fraction of every transaction. Yeah, off they the were books. peeling off pennies off of every a penny or two off of every dollar that was being transacted. And then what ended up happening when they were going to get caught is they put the decimal point in the wrong place. And it ended up like 10, you know, it was it was. 20 cents this, per dollar instead of two pennies per dollar. This could be apocryphal, but uh, I think that's why coins have ridges on them because people in England were shaving. They would shave coins. That makes this sense. This is an old thing. You could look that up. Very interesting. interesting. Yeah. Look up the history of that. Well, that's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well, American gonna, Psycho. Yeah. Well, American Psycho is one of the, it's one of the darkest comedies ever. It's a comedy. It's hilarious. It's, it's, it's hilarious. And Christian Bale's yeah. performance is amazing, and his physique yeah. is on par. Not quite Brad Pitt's, but it's the closest you're, you're going to come to it of mm-hmm. any movie ever. <laughs> he makes his own porn. He's pumping away. It's just – it's hilarious. It's also a great period piece. It's a great New York in the 80s. Yeah. yeah. It's a vibe. Yeah. You're, you're in that vibe from the first frame until the last frame. It's tremendous. Yeah. Big yeah, fan. It's hilarious. Mm-hmm. It is. Uh, All right. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to put it out there that right, American Psycho is now. There's, you know, there's probably enough there to do a book, film episode on on American Psycho because. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to say this earlier. Like Fight Club is very close to the book. Um, the major difference though is Marla. Marla's character is. She's got more screen time in the book. She's got more dialogue. The relationship between her and Norton is much more uh, fleshed out. And there's another very David Foster Wallian-esque scene at the end where her and all of her uh, – that's not in the movie. But this is straight out of Infinite Jest. <laughs> her and all of her like uh, cancer victim uh, support group friends who are like – handicapped and in wheelchairs and missing limbs and and just all sorts of various assorted freaks are running to save edward norton's character the narrator at the end to stop him from shooting himself and he shoots himself in the face in front of all of the support group people which is not what happens in the movie right marla is captured by tyler durden and brought back remember he puts her on the Mm -hmm. bus to save her that's the thing about the movie that's why this this isn't a gay homoerotic movie like he wants to be with Marla, but he right. was too effeminized to get her. So he created this like animalistic Tyler Durden character because of his sexual attraction to Marla. Right. This is like it flies to liber- in the face to, li- of that. to liberate him so he could do it. Right. To, so he to, could yeah. get the girl. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At the end yeah, of the day, a... it's a love story. And that's mm-hmm. what Chuck Palahniuk calls it in the afterwards. He calls right. it a love story. Right. Right. Huh. Mm. All right, you guys get the last word, but uh, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you oh, this so much awesome. for being my first <laughs> season two episode. I'm very proud to have you guys as my first season two guests, and I uh, hope I didn't talk too much so you guys will come no, back again. No, no. No, that was great, man. We'll Thanks come for back anytime. It. Yeah, such uh, a pleasure, and uh, you've got my juices going. I'm thinking about American Psycho. i gotta, I got to go do normal work now, but it's time has flown. Like That, that felt like time travel. The sun yeah, is the, yeah. the light has come out and everything. Just great. Can I give our plugs real quick? Yeah, give our plugs. Uh, plug plug your um, Heart of Darkness reading as well. 
Yeah. yeah, right. So we we have a book club for Patreon members. The first book we're going to be reading is Heart of Darkness. Of course, is where we take our name from. The podcast is Art of Darkness. You can get it at artofdarkpod.com, patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. And we're really urging people, even if you don't use YouTube as a channel, go there. Please subscribe. It doesn't cost you anything. Uh, we're trying to get our numbers up there so we can monetize it. They're already running ads against our stuff. And, uh, it just seems silly. So, you know, go over there, follow us on YouTube. It's, uh, youtube.com slash at art of dark pod. And yeah, seriously, that reading that we're going to do, the reading, we're doing a book club essentially. Uh, if you go to the website, there's a link right there. You can't miss it. And, uh, very excited about that. Brad, anything else? Yeah, no, we know we got a, we got a whole season three slated up. We got really cool stuff coming up. Uh, we're going to be covering Joseph Conrad, Maya Deeran, Ernest Hemingway, David Foster Wallace. We're going to be covering Bukowski and John Milton. We got a ton of great stuff coming up for 2023. Mishima. Mishima. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, look out for that. Plus dark room episodes out the wazoo. Uh, yeah, yeah. Art of dark Check out my dark room episode with on Roberto Bolaño. Yes. It's very good. Definitely check that out. It's maybe our most popular, if not, it's basically our most popular. Yeah, Bolaño. Yeah, it was very. Yep. Um, and we're gonna. Yeah, we'll we'll talk back channel, but you're coming back on this year, so I uh, hope so. I mean, yeah, you got you just 100%. named an amazing lineup for season yeah, three. I mean, that's just a start. Yeah, we got a ton still, of great stuff coming. I I had such a busy uh, fall, winter, Christmas season. I never caught the Crowley episode, so I got to go back and. Oh, check I think it I out, like yeah. texted one of you guys, like, "Holy shit, did the Crowley episode come out?" Yeah. And I just missed it. Yeah. So, Mr. Um, Crowley, I, can... <laughs> I gotta do that. Kevin's gotta do yes, that. you gotta He's... go listen to that. Kevin is contractually obligated to do that every time. I buy... yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's my homework for uh, next time I talk to you guys. I have to listen to the Crowley episode. Cool. But uh, yeah. full endorsement for your pod. I mean, it's the best literary pod. And that's saying a lot because I'm aspiring to be a literary pod. Yeah. You guys have the best one. So, ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, no, your 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 podcast is great, man. Yours, it's my one of my number one listens. So right, I love I love. Right. Your show, and it's an honor to be on here. Absolutely. All right. All right. Signing off here. Thank you.